This podcast is brought to you by Mamba FX, a new powerful and innovative compositing software developed by SGO. Aimed at compositing at all levels from the highly creative indie market through to major TV and studio productions. Running under Windows and available for a wide variety of PC configurations, Mamba FX is aggressively priced, making it one of the most accessible professional compositors on the market. Mamba FX is available for free evaluation and pre-order online. Go to www.sgo.es slash shop. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, I'm Mike Seymour, and welcome to this special RC interview. Uh, we just thought as a Christmas present to you guys, we would give you this uh, special interview I did with Rob Legato. Rob Legato is the Academy Award-winning VFX supervisor of uh, Martin Scorsese's Hugo. And this film uh, that he does done with uh, Martin Scorsese again, along with, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio, which is The Wolf of Wall Street, is a terrific film, just really brilliant. But what's really interesting about it is that I went into this thinking that I'd be having a visual effects discussion with Rob, who has uh, worked on films like Titanic and is just a, you know industry legend. What I wasn't prepared for but so enjoyed was how much uh, Rob wanted to discuss and how much we got discussing the process of filming, lens choices, cameras, um, how he goes about doing things, how he goes about setting stuff up. Because not only was he a visual effects supervisor on the film, but he was also second unit director and worked as second unit uh, director of photography. So this uh, could easily, I guess, have been an FX podcast, but we thought we'd just put it out as a special RC podcast because I thought you guys would be interested. And obviously, this is one of those huge crossover things. Um, so we will discuss the amazing work of uh, Method, Crazy Horse, Lola, uh, Brainstorm, and Scanline FX in terms of the FX stuff. But what I think you guys will find really interesting is hearing this uh, from the point of view of somebody that is really interested in the photography and how the photography works and how to film for visual effects. So he'll be discussing, as you'll hear in a few moments, um, his approach to green screen, his approach to being able to uh, you know, choose what type of gear and cameras and stuff to use. So this is a lengthy interview, um, one I'm really uh, proud to be able to present because I've got to say, I find Rob to be tremendously generous uh, with his time. We we've known Rob for a while. He's a really good guy, um, uh, sincerely think he's just one of the most talented guys out there but more than that um, he has this terrific perspective of both visual effects photography and direction and he's working in a team that's incredibly collaborative on one of let's face it the the best kind of run of projects in the world there are a few key directors right now who have kind of sort of set teams that tend to roll on from film to film uh, Christopher Nolan's another one um, but Martin Scorsese has this core team around him of really, really good people that he likes to work with uh, on a very regular basis. And, and key to that group uh, is Rob Legato. So here now is my uh, interview with Rob Legato as a special Christmas thank you to you, the members of our RC community. Thank you so much for your support this year. Uh, both Jason and I really appreciate it. Um, this special one-off uh, interview which doesn't replace the RC. We're not going to change the format. We just thought we'd give it to you uh, as our kind of Christmas present this year. So thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate the support. And as always, please keep those emails and uh, tweets coming. We love hearing from you guys. You are probably the, one of the more vocal groups of our um, wider FX Guide community. Thanks so much. Here now is Academy Award winner uh, Rob Legato. I don't know. 
I started my own firm out of an abandoned auto body shop. We will be targeting the wealthiest 1% of Americans. I love three things. I love my country, I love Jesus Christ, and I love making people rich. Hello? This is the greatest company in the world! I was becoming a legend. We don't work for you, man. You have my money taped to your boobs. Technically, you do work for me. Hello, Rob. Thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. So, look, I've been looking forward to talking to you about The Wolf of Wall Street, a terrific film. And, of course, uh, you're working again with director Martin Scorsese. But, in fact, uh, you used a new or you're working with a new DOP this time on the film. Yes, it is. Rodrigo Pareto. Yeah. So, Rob, on this film, you are the visual effects supervisor, but you're also the second unit director. Yeah, I was also the second unit director of photography as well. Um, so, you know, basically how I've worked with Marty in the past and the way I like to work anyway is that um, – uh, you know, I sort of treat uh, whatever I'm doing, uh, whether it involves a visual effect or not, as another unit, you know, uh, 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 you know, figuring out how to best shoot a particular item and who is best to shoot it. And sometimes it's best for me to do it because I could spend and lavish more time on it than the first unit can, or it requires so much specialized filming. And then there's, there is a, a blurred line between what would be an effect and what would really just be pure second unit. And because I came from live action, I, uh, I, you know, I have a sensitivity to that because there's a lot of things I could figure out how to shoot in camera that if you're just the visual effects supervisor, you tend to solve your problems just with visual effects as opposed to, you know, just say, you know what, I'm going to change the shot to a better shot and I'm going to do it in camera because I think that's the best way of doing it. And then, you know, during that day, you may do a green screen shot, you may do something else. So because it's all lumped together, it's kind of like the best use of your time, the best, your most economical way of, of working and shooting. You don't need a separate DP, you don't need a separate director, you don't need a separate visual effects supervisor on the day to do that stuff. It's all... You know, you can freely schedule the day. So on this film, you uh, built, I understand, an Alexa digital pipelines because the film, I think, initially was going to be shot primarily digitally on Alexa, though, as it turned out, a lot of the uh, first unit stuff ended up being done on film. Yeah, it did. Uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, I mean, my, you know, once you start doing things digitally and you're of the mind like I am or Roger Deakins is or other directors of photography or directors, it's like to go backwards there's got to be some compelling reason to go backwards because of the pluses that you get when you shoot digitally, as long as you're fine with the image, which, you know, I, I'll use Roger uh, Deakins as, you know, excuse the sort of rhyme, uh, as the beacon of, you know, somebody with the greatest taste in photography who, you know, uh, this, you know determines that, you know, I could shoot just as well on this format and then get all the pluses with it than I can just on film. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Deacon does magnificent work, and you know he just doesn't seem to give up a thing in terms of lighting. No, he doesn't give up a thing. In fact, he gets a lot of things in return, and that's you know when you're a very secure person, a very secure cameraman, you can make you, you don't have to hide behind the and I you know this will sound shitty and, and maybe it is, but there's some people who are insecure that they want to get behind the the banner of oh no film is the best. It's like it's what yeah film was always wonderful, it was great, and now something is better. And and uh, to denigrate it and say no, it isn't, 
because I want to be, be, you know, uh, be part of this sort of little club that, that, you know, oh, the, we're purists, you know, I, you know, I just don't necessarily agree because the facts don't back them up in that particular case. And, uh, and then when you look at Skyfall or look at any Roger Deakins m- movie, it's like, well, Jesus, somebody do better than that. I mean, as a cameraman, you know, somebody, somebody show me a better looking image than what he can create and what Bob created on, uh, uh, and what we did on Hugo and, and stuff like that, you know? So, you know, I, I, I think there's a little bit of, uh, of reverse snobbery, in the in the uh, uh, film is is best because you can't make the claim that doesn't have the stop range anymore. You can't make any claim, and then you know uh, uh, even on this movie, um, uh, you know I, I, personally I'm not a grain fan, you know. And when I admired my heroes of photography, Caleb Dashanel, Gordon Willis, and Vittorio Storaro, they were known for their fine grain film. Because it, because the medium disappeared and you just got sucked up into the into the into the uh, movie, and it was more beautifully rendered to me. So, if your rationale is, oh, but I miss the grain, as Roger said, well, you didn't put the grain back in if you really miss it. But I don't miss it. In fact, when I see a seventy millimeter film like a David Lean film, there is no grain. It looks, you know, it's spectacular work. And so I, I you know, my my bias is. Not to discredit, a film is great, and there's nothing wrong with it, except, you know, unfortunately something better came along who and who has grown up, and then there's more pluses than minuses, and by the way, we take anything that's done on film and we instantly transfer it digitally, so we have the downside of that and the downside of the of the capture medium, and then all the pluses of, of digital, and you go, well, what am I doing that for? Why do I have to accept the bad parts? extra grain and all that stuff so yeah you know one of the things i I think sometimes there's a perception out there because martin scorsese has such a respect for film and has such an encyclopedic knowledge of it that somehow he's going to favor old school techniques over over new techniques but that isn't certainly what i've heard from talking to you over the years no i don't believe that's the case i mean i think he um he is open to you know anything i mean you see his his appreciation for 3d was you know was was great i mean he didn't there was no i mean he's not a technophobe though he's not one of those people who's a gadget freak like i am or like jim cameron is or michael bay or bob zemeckis or people or steven spielberg or people are in francis coppola in particular who are known for oh let me find a new tool and let me incorporate that into the mix so he doesn't he's not that he's not searching for the next technical you know triumph in that but he does appreciate it when he does see it. You know, I'll show him stuff, you know, uh, for the uh, first time on this movie. I, I was able to send him stuff. And so he could see it on his iPad at home. And he loved it. I mean, he he, he got off on it. And I would, uh, um, so may, all the conveniences, although he's not like a big technophobe with iPads and stuff like that. He loved the idea of doing it and, and, and the convenience of it. Because uh, it's once you do it, it's hard to go back. It's hard to say no, no. Um, come over with a, your laptop, and I'll schedule time, and then you'll show up, and then I'll be rushed. And I'll be doing other things, and let me see it. And there's Claire on the screen, and there's this and that, and I don't get a chance to really think about it before I have to make up my mind and say something to you. Where you know what? I'll send you a text, tell you that to look in your email, and there is a video that we made small enough to fit on your iPad, but quality enough so you can make up your mind about it and get back to me when you want to. And it was like, well, you can't, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, uh, argue with that. 
So one of the new innovations that you used in this film, um, which wasn't an Alexa, it was to use the C500 or a, a version, an early version of the C500 to get some uh, octocopter shot stuff, presumably because, uh, you know, obviously, certainly from an old school point of view, you couldn't have a, a film camera or that weight of film camera um, being lifted. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the fact, it's literally if the octocopter could only lift up seven and a half pounds. And, and uh, you know, so it would either be a red or a red scarlet or, uh, or the C500. I like the C500 because, A, I like the, the camera and the technology behind it, but uh, it's, it's a 4K quality image that I can appreciate and uh, all that stuff. So, and, and the, the, uh, the way it behaves is, you know, I'm a big Alexa fan, is more, more in keeping with Alexa than, than not because it's a camera manufacturer. You know, it's their, they made, you know, cameras first, then they made digital cameras, and then they're, they're making cinema cameras. So as opposed to like, uh, and not to denigrate anybody else's work because, you know, you can make anything look great. Um, you know, where RED is, is, is not necessarily started out as a film camera and have the film camera sensibilities or photography sensibilities uh, or, or Sony. They made video cameras and then they use some of that knowledge to, to you know, uh, um, uh, turn it into, you know, their, their camera. So, I, you know, my bias and maybe, you know, I'm now lumped into the kind of the people I was saying that I shouldn't be is, you know, I, I'm, I'm used to the ergonomics of uh, cameras because that's what I grew up doing. I didn't grow up in a digital age. I grew up in a, in a mechanical film age. And, uh, but I have an appreciation for the quality of the image that comes out the other side and, and the ease of use. And, and quite frankly, even though I'm not directly involved in programming it and getting the stuff out of it because it's easy enough for me to understand and do, I kind of like, you know, that's why I drive a BMW. I just, the engineering of it, I, I appreciate and, 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 uh, you know, and think is, you know, more akin to the way I, I think engineering should be. And so I, I, I like that. You know, I like those cameras. And, and uh, Alexa certainly has that sort of heritage, that the DNA in it of coming from a feature film camera. Yeah, well, that's where I, I, I coined the, the thing, uh, um, uh, is that, you know, it's not, it's a digital film camera. It's not a digital camera. It's, it's, a, it's basically a, a film camera with a digital uh, um, a chip, basically. It, it, and so it behaves the same way. You know the, the the all the engineering that goes along with it, the the focus rods and the and the and the you know all that stuff is all up with an understanding of what people are used to using. And over my, this is my belief system is over time, we have evolved equipment to be the best that it could be for how we like to shoot. So they've had you know however long Aries been around seventy years. Of evolution of what is the what a camera systems like what everybody likes, and that gets that knowledge base gets incorporated into the engineering of a camera that now instead of recording on film just records on a chip, and you know quite frankly at the end of the day the end result is the same at some point whatever however you gather that image it's going to be into a digital format to edit with to color correct with to release in like on Wolf of Wall Street there was not one U.S. film print made. It was all made for uh, uh, other countries that still don't have, you know, digital projection. But in the U.S., it's all DCP. There's no, there's no more uh, uh, film showings. 
So in terms of your pipeline, I guess some of the things that the Alexa and the digital pipeline gave you, for example, I mean, low light performance uh, and, uh, well, really good green screen performance? Yeah, well, it, it does. And the ease of getting it and the ease of even delivering the material to the house that's doing it is so shortened compared to film. I mean, film, you have to go through a couple of steps to to render it, um, um, you know, useful to you. And one of them, quite frankly, is, and no one really pays that much attention to it, but it is substantial, is, you know, film cameras are no longer being developed and, and, and taken care of in the same way they used to be. So they're not really pin registered uh, uh, to any, you know, great spec anymore. So you have that slight amount of weave and stuff that you're getting from it. So you have to essentially stabilize. As soon as you stabilize an image, you lose the resolution a bit, and and it, you know the the quality is not you know perfect uh, um, uh, anymore. Like so, what you thought you were getting, you're not getting anymore. And uh, and if you just save or shave off a half hour less per shot to dick around with the key, over hundred shots, you you start to come up with a substantial number that allows you to just do one or two more artistic iterations rather than technical iterations, just to get a decent key out of it. You know, and you still can, you still do all that, but it requires a lot more work. And that does show up one day and you get one less shot to do, two less shots to do, or a handful of shots that are, that are one or two iterations away from being done because you just ran out of time and money. So, and, and for what gain, you know, you have to realize what the gain is. Does it look any better? You know, in my opinion, no, it doesn't. So one of the things that people can really hate about shooting with digital cinematography is that you can have an incompletely open shutter. Uh, though here the production actually shot with a 360-degree shutter to good effect, right, by shooting 12 frames a second and then having this much sort of longer motion blur. Was that something that came from your testing? Was that something from you? No, I think it was more of a Rodrigo thing. Uh, I'm sort of more involved in just the complete hatred of the 360-degree shutter for normal filming because it does look like a, a, a gluey video quality. I really don't like the way it looks. And, you know, again, my opinion is sort of, you know, steeped into my history. And my history is film looked great. Video did not look great. Video looked cheap. Film looked wonderful. One of them has a a beautiful veil on it. um, And the other one doesn't. The veil is removed on it. So I have a a thing where when I see something that hints at video, hence the 48 frame per second or 60 frame per second thing, I just don't care for it. Um, And so that's, but it's based on my history. And in the case of this, the fact that we shot a 360 degree shutter, but yet printed every frame twice, got rid of the video look. And now you just had the, the, the artistic look of of a, a you know of a, a rendering it into someone's interpretation of what a quaalude thing might be, so it it, it didn't it, it took the sting out of the if you play that back at 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 um you know twelve frames a second as it was shot it would look crappy, uh, but played back at twenty four which means it printed every frame twice you no longer had that quality of a 360 degree shutter. Right. So, because it's 12 frames a second, not 24. It's not like it shot 360 degree shutter at 24 frames a second. It's at 12 frames. Yeah. And then you skip that chunk of time to get to the next thing. It's really shortening the chunk of time between one frame and the next. That's why six, you know, video looks like video is that it's really running at 60 frames a second in, in the U S it's, um, it's running at, at that because it's 60 fields, but so it's 60 new images, per second and so there's very little lag time in between the two shots where in film it's definitely 
you know, a 50th of the second per thing, waits a 50th of the second, then shoots the next one. So there's a delay there. And something, that formula of that delay, A, we're used to it, for one. And two, um, uh, we associate that with, you know, the movies we like to see, where we don't get removed from the medium that we're watching it because something looks different. It looks just like films in, in the past. That's why digital works so well is that it's shooting at 24 frames a second. I mean, it really is, the, you know, there's no difference. And if the curve of the film, of the, of the digital thing, matches the curve of film, you're capturing and rendering the color quality and, and, uh, and fall off quality of, of what we're used to. So there's a, a, and you just don't have the grain with it and you have much lower light um, uh, uh, capabilities in it. And you know, uh, um, uh, you know, faster speed. So you don't give up anything. So Rob, I, just before we start talking about the visual effect shots per se, um, I was just curious about your experiences with the octocopter. Did you enjoy it? Was it like a a good platform for you to actually film plate photography from? Uh, the experience was good. I mean, the first time of using it, to be quite frank, was you know, a you, you you're just amazed by the thing. I mean, that's just the freedom of having something that you can control like that. Uh, and, and the first time we shot it, we had a little problem with it where we were using a prototype camera and a prototype, um, a capture device, the Gemini with it, cause it was light enough to actually capture that, that medium in the quality that I wanted. And the first time we shot it, I didn't get the quality I wanted because there was one switch that was not thrown or some, thing that happened, some firmware upgrade that wasn't compatible with the uh, Gemini, and it actually did not record it at 4K like I wanted it. It recorded it at 1920 by 1080, uh, in, and it was compressed. So like my first thing was like, A, it's fantastic. The shot looks great. It's really cool. Oh, shit. The, we, we missed what, why we got this camera in, uh, in, in the first place. Thank God we had a backup system. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have got the shot at all. Uh, but the second time, once those, once the technical stuff is, is, is uh, fully addressed, and that was a little bit of a production problem for me is the guys didn't come in until the night before and, and uh, myself knowing, you know, whatever could go wrong will go wrong. I need to witness and see it working before I shoot. And I wasn't really allowed uh, because they came in the night before. I, and I can't rely on somebody else saying, yes, it worked. Because if they don't hit all the parameters, when I go hit all the parameters, then I'm really, uh, um, th- then I really know that it's working or not. So they didn't hit all the parameters, said it worked. I tend to, uh, you know, I had no choice but to believe them. The, they, uh, the, the helicopter went up, we recorded the shots, Marty was happy with them. And then it's like, now can I see it? And we couldn't until we hooked it up to a computer and went, holy shit, we just don't have it. And, um, and so I need to witness and see it before it goes on it, with the same, you know, uh, a level that I, I normally, uh, you know, uh, look at this stuff. And I just wasn't allowed to. So it was really, you know, very annoying for me to know better kind of you know and circumstances directed me instead of i directed it and so i I, that part that was the only negative part the rest of it was cool as hell It, it, it is a very great device and once it's hooked up with you know the canon 4k camera and you could record this stuff you know the the possibilities are 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 extraordinary and uh and i wish i was able to use it more on the film 
than than I did. You know, it's it's one of those things where you you could really make great use of it and and come up with some really terrific shots to help tell the story in a in a unique way, which which of course I'm always interested in. So I, I found it to be uh, the the first go round um, less pleasant, and everything after that. Terrific. Because it ended up in the film in the Hampton shot, right? I mean, well, there was no the Hampton Beach party, but there was no, of course, a party on the beach. Correct. And it wasn't in the Hamptons and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, and we, we you know, uh, cha- changed the, the architecture of the house a bit and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we, it was quite a bit of, uh, of, uh, of work. Uh, but if you examine the film closely, there are artifacts that were, there were uh, less than what I'd hoped for because of the... How stable a platform was it? Did you have to end up like going back and restabilizing or, or readjusting the timing of the helicopter stuff or the octocopter stuff? Or did it work pretty well? Uh, no, th- there was a little bit of stabilization, but not a ton. It was, it was, and then you know, again, it was the first time using that camera, which is at the heaviest end of their of their acceptability. Uh, so there is a trim on it that that would make it better. So our next you know, go around with it was quite a bit more stabilized and you still stabilize it. It's kind of like, you know, the Fincher thing where he takes every shot in his movie and stabilizes it. So it's this absolutely, you know, glacier smooth camera move, even though a regular camera going on a dolly isn't, you know, perfectly smooth, even though we we assume it is, he makes it that way. So there, there, it was kind of in that zone where it's steady enough but, you know, you go in through and you clean it up a little more. And because you have the bigger 4K image, you can do that and, and get away with it. Yeah, can I ask you about that? The the film is uh, had a 4K finish, but the visual effects could only, off the Alexa, be working at, what, 2.5, 3K. So did you up What was the situation? Yeah, it had to drop at 2K because we couldn't afford to do the... Uh, to do the uh, um, uh, the, the work at 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 uh, 4K. You know, when I did my own shots and I and I shot a couple things with the C500, some inserts and things like that, I could keep it at 4K because you know I don't care if I wait another hour for a cop to come out. You know, it doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm doing it all at home anyway, so I could maintain that quality and and leave it at 4K. But the vendors, you know, it's a financial uh, hardship for them to keep the same number and 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 work. And do twenty shots at four K is different than me doing, you know, five at home because you know I don't really care when it comes out. It comes out at eight o'clock that night or tomorrow morning. It doesn't really make any difference to me. There's no, I don't have a staff or anything else. So you know, um, you know, my in my version of it when I was doing a shot that I was doing, um, you know, there uh, uh, the, the, and I, you know, quite frankly, if you're going to get into the four K thing, there's only limited value in it quite frankly, uh, at this stage of the game that I can see. Um, uh, and it's not a prejudice against it. It's like, you know, A, it's four times the amount of data. And for the most part, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of making up a number here that's probably not that far off. But like 80% of the theaters can only really play 2K anyway. So you do this, and we couldn't even see it when we were doing the DI. There were, we didn't have a 4K projector to see it, and, and it's deluxe. So... You know, we didn't. We never really got a chance to see what it really looked like in 4K. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sort of shit stir or anything, but it does seem like the film was scanned at 6K, and obviously the DI at 4K. But I mean, uh, did you notice any difference? I mean, to your eye, comparing the two? No. Now, in fact, what the deal is that the um, um, uh, you know, for me, you know, this is you know, semi non-technical but technical at the same time. Uh, <laughs> Rob, I think we can, I think we can take it as read that you've got a pretty um, 
impressive and very experienced eye. I, I totally uh, <laughs> rely on you as an expert. Okay, film uh, basically does not resolve above 3K. There's no more information off of 35 millimeter film than you can get off of a 3K scan. 4K is just now you're starting to see more grain. You're starting to see the medium of which the resolution was baked onto. So scratches, uh, 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 physical grain is accentuated at 4K. Uh, 3K is the maximum resolving power of it. Uh, and, you know, somebody could quarrel with it, but that's pretty much the case. So 6K is all bullshit. 6K is, is, is just a, a downsampling, you know, algorithm that helps you in some way because the quality of the scanners has more to do with that than has to do with the actual resolving power of film. And um, uh, because you have, and because grain is really in the middle of this resolving power of, of film, you remove the grain and a 3K image is uh, every bit as good a quality as the as the the four K you know film scan really you know and, and you know when you actually and, and you would not be able to tell the difference. In fact, I shot with the Alexa, mm-hmm. yeah, when uh, to cut into a scene that was shot on film to and to not look like it was or not be a, a separate thing, but mimic it. We had to soften it to to and add grain to it to make it look. Like it had the same resolving power as as uh, um, as film, uh, which was at 4K. You know, so then I, I, you know, uh, I don't think anybody could tell the difference, you know, one way or the other. And so, you know, my 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 belief system from all the numbers and all the stuff, and you know, and and I think it's uh, there's a little bit of a, a um, falsehood uh, uh, technically that, and, and you know, also at a certain point. You can't really see beyond 4K in terms of quality unless you're very close to the screen. And the further and further away you get from the screen, the less resolution you can actually uh, um, perceive. Like if you're in the you know if you're in the middle of a movie theater, you couldn't see the difference between a 4K film and a 2K film. There's no way. Now if you're in the front row at an IMAX theater, then you can because you're so close to the image. It's like <laughs> you know you that, certainly wouldn't want to have seen your film. Uh, the front row in IMAX. No, yeah, it's horrible. And so, but, you know, quite frankly, that's why 4K became a little more of a thing because IMAX screens are more stadium seated, so you're fairly close to the screen and you can see a difference. Now, as soon as you move anywhere back, I mean, literally, somebody did a test and it might may or may not be, you know, scientific, but I think you could probably find it online, where um, just measure the resolution that you could perceive. And at the end of... The theater, you couldn't tell the difference if that was a, a standard def image or a or a two K image. You just can't see it. Your your eye can't resolve it. So, you know, you could you know, it's like it's like hearing a note that uh, is inaudible to your ears. It's great. I'm glad you have it, but you can't hear it. Um, so, you know, the the the, the technophobe of of you know getting this exact thing and and, and preserving every last nuance. You know the mechanism of of uh, perceiving it is is um, not that keen, not that great. Um, so you know, so I, that's where the practicality of it, and you know, my practicality with um, the Alexa and film and all that stuff is, if I could produce a shot that you can't tell the difference of, you're holding on to a religion more than you're holding on to in, inherent quality of of what you're seeing, and you just you know don't like it because you want to, you know, not like it. 
take Well, Rob, if I could just change gears now. I mean, some of the stuff we've been discussing, you know, you needed to shoot for various reasons. For example, the uh, you couldn't get a real helicopter into the neighbourhood where you wanted to shoot. A neighbourhood, um, yeah. That's up. But I was just talking about the, the boat now, if we could, if we could shift gears to that. And, uh, and obviously, you couldn't get a boat. You could get a boat to Italy, but uh, you couldn't reasonably, at a reasonable price, get the entire cast and crew over to Italy. So you did that with green screen? Yeah, it was it was and it was always planned to be at some point. A, they're not going to go to Italy for one, and two, the boat doesn't really exist in the form that we needed the boat to exist, which is a bit of a hybrid. It's not exactly the real boat, but it's it's flavored by the by the real ship at the time. Uh, um, and then obviously we have to sink it and all the various things. So since we're in the process of making a our own fabricated boat. It made sense. Now, the, the first initial thing was, well, let's shoot it on a real boat, which, of course, you have to get rid of half the stuff, and put green screens on outside. It's like, well, that's crazy in New York in the wintertime, you know, uh, you know the, uh, and you're, you're, in a, you're, you're sort of in a dry dock, but you're not really. Um, uh, you know, you have to fill up it with water, turn it around, drop it back down. It takes, it takes hours and hours and hours to do a reverse. So, um you know, it basically has to f- go out of the harbor and come back in to, to do the reverse. So it was, it was uh, although it was considered, it was immediately dropped for impracticality. You, you know, you're into a big setup. So let's design the boat as we wish the boat to be designed, uh, uh, period-wise and, and all that. And we know we're into a green screen stage, that, um, and we know we're going to use the Alexa because there's going to be 80 shots that I can't really – you know, we didn't have a lot of money for this. I mean, this is like a a, a four and a half million dollar visual effects budget. So there's, you know, those little things. You know, if you spend an extra week and a half on a composite times eighty, that's a lot more money than you uh, wish to spend just for plumbing reasons. So you know, you're just sort of into it. Once you're into it, you're into it, and then now you can pretty much shoot any shot you want. And and uh, for the most part, if you do the kind of the formula that I came up with on Apollo, which is imitate sunlight it's two stops over two stops under and you place your exposure anywhere in between that that's really mimicking sunlight and backlight is much easier to try to match to than uh, uh front light is it's much more forgiving Rob, i wonder if i could just get you to expand on that for a second because you've done it very successfully but many many people do not shoot uh interior or or stage uh light for daylight successfully the comp just doesn't look believable i just wonder if you could expand on what you mean by or your approach on shooting uh for for daylight when you're not actually outside yeah i mean i i you know i always kind of go for um um kind of the underlying what is the underlying reality to shooting you know anything and the underlying reality if you go to imitate what's outside is a hard key that's at its best two stops over your exposure and and fill is two stops under your exposure and as a cameraman you decide well i'm gonna you know uh, i want to shoot i want to basically expose for the shadow so i'll keep the sunlight two and a half stops over and i'll just you know that's my scale and i'll just pick whatever my exposure is within that scale but i can't really change it and because you're shooting in an artificial way the more you fudge that the more it looks like a shot that you would never have seen a live version of that shot. You'd only see an effects version of that shot. So I try to steer away from that so that you would have seen a shot that's exposed pretty much like that in real life. And the only way you wouldn't have, it was overfilled or the, or the sunlight was too soft, but yet it's not that soft on the background and various things. It can only be a composite that would remind you of a fake 
scene as opposed to remind you of a real scene. So, you know, it's a little bit of sleight of hands, a little bit of just saying, you know what, here's the simplistic version of it. What's my exposure range outside and what's the easiest way of imitating it? And a lot of times, you know, when I'm doing it, I'll take a 20K, take the Fresnel off. And so I have a hard light. You move it as back as far as you can. So, so as to get the light as parallel as possible on the actors? As parallel as possible. And when it's not, there's also so many things that block sun in the middle. So you put up three of them and you make sure that the beams don't cross. And it could go in and out of, could be a little more chiaroscuro, it could go in and out of that as if a tree was blocking it or whatever. And, you, and your eye accepts it, especially when it's backlit. You Really difficult for you to see that lighting continuity. And so now you have a, you know, a light that imitates the the structure of sunlight and then you you know get the exposure on that and you say okay well here i'm at a five six so let me go four stops down let me set the fill at that level now i'm outside you know i'm interested you're using a 20k because i've been on sets that have had like soft suns like hundred thousand watt soft suns to get kind of that light and, and we use more of that for this um and and uh, uh you know we use more of a 20k but a 20k you know works because but 20k would be your kind of minimum yeah pretty much but you know you get it you know you get a 2.8 or, or 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 whatever and then because you could and now you're shooting with you know 800 asa so it's not quite so heinous as it used to be on film um and you use three of them you know four of them I mean, you know it's for coverage for spread um and depends on what you're photographing if you see too many shadows then you got to be a little more careful than that but if you're not seeing shadows you're seeing cowboys or whatever else or you're not featuring it or whatever you know you can get away with a lot and also um uh, dinos work great for that they look beautiful uh um and uh you know you can get away with you know what amounts to murder now we use like some sort of soft sun i mean i, I forget what it was that we used but it was really bright and it's like yeah that works too i mean it, it, it was fine and you had a 50-foot high by 80-foot wide green screen. How were you lighting that? Uh, with kinos uh, uh, and, uh, and lighting. And lots of them. Yeah, and lighting from the rafters and stuff like that. The, the plumbing portion is how to physically get an exposure on the green screen. The non-plumbing portion is correctly photographing the, um, the, the foreground uh, to mimic it. And, and the, the main thing that you do is that, you know, again, with, with imitating sunlight – is you need a big broad source, so you know you basically uh, put you know uh, 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 you know like silks or whatever you, you put in the ceiling, and then you have a couple you know on either end, and you walk around your light meter. When that's a dead even uh, thing, that means you have light from three sixty, just like the skylight would be, and then you add a hard key. And, and, and the artistic portion of it is just like you would during the, you know, if you're shooting outside, you wait for the right time of day. So you pick the right time of day and you, and you shoot it. And, uh, um, and it's, it's a very simple formula that eludes everybody because it's so simple. It's like people just don't want to get it. it could, and and they, every cameraman will say that who hasn't done it, it's like it's impossible to imitate sunlight on stage. It's like, oh, that's bullshit. You know, you, you, that's easy to do it. You just have to do it. Rob, why not uh, film with blue? I mean, why not have blue screen and then you're going to have like what you would from a natural skydive, blue kind of in your shadows? Well, you actually, uh, you do use a little bit of blue, um, which I think is overused too. I think that, you know, your, your brain doesn't really perceive the blue quite as much as, as people want to think it does. And you tend to defeat it a little bit. But if you use green screen, then you could use blue fill. If you use blue screen, you can't use blue fill. And you get nothing from the screen when it's done properly because you've basically eliminated that color and any remnants of that color 
basically goes black. So you get no light output from your screen. So even if you shot it against blue screen, your blue that you would have inherently in the scene has to come out with it and be replaced by black or whatever. Right. So what you're saying is that if you have blue screen and you use key suppression, you're going to suppress blue, which is going to take blue out of the foreground and in particular out of the shadows. Yeah. And, and that, and that I think you do a, a little bit. I think that you, uh, uh, you know, even on this film, you know, it was a little overdone. It seemed like, well, that's, you know, uh, uh, you know, a cool thing to do, excuse the pun, but it, it was, you know, uh, I think a little bit goes a long way that you, you just need to not, you need to have it white and maybe like a, a quarter blue at best. Uh, but you don't want to do like, shadows being really blue because they're really not that blue when you look at a real if you just took a picture outside you don't really look in the shadows and go look how cold it is it, it looks relatively normal um uh, and doesn't look overly blue uh in, in that now if you're doing an older film or imitating old slide film you would you know multiply that 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 blue cold look that you may be remembering but in modern film there's too much cross crossover in it you don't I don't. I, in my opinion, is you don't see that that much blue in the shadows like like uh, uh, some people remember. But of course, the backgrounds that were going in here were not a CG generated environment. They were actually Italy. So, how important was it to match and get the right background plates for the foreground? Or uh, my again, I have a different opinion about stuff that I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I, I certainly do. Is that. Um, I don't like when something is nailed exactly. Like if you say, okay, we're going to do that entire sequence, and that entire sequence wants to essentially use the same plate because of uh, theoretically the sun wouldn't move, you know, in that particular thing. I, I'm not a big fan of that because I think, again, the only time you would ever see that scenario is in an artificial way. So the further I get away from anything artificial, so I just shot plates and I picked. You know, they're mostly backlit, but the sun's moving a little bit between each one. And it would be just like I was shooting uh, the, the scene during the course of the day. I might want to still shoot towards the south, so I'm getting mostly backlight, but it's a little to the left on, on you know, one thing. It's a little to the right on the other. And um, and so I shot it. So it was, A, it's key to, to create this look that hopefully is realistic enough for the common person to not know that there was actually a blue screen involved. Or a green screen involved, and and just accept the scene as a scene, um, and so that that's kind of you know what I did is I shot it the way I would have shot the scene live. So who did you work with for that bit? Was that uh, brainstorm or was that method? Uh, which uh, which effects house? Uh, that was actually um, method in New York. Mark uh, Mark Forker, who I worked with uh, on Apollo and Titanic, um, he moved to the East Coast and and he spearheaded that portion of it. We also had the sequence of the Naomi, the ship sinking uh, in the storm. So, how do you go about doing that? I understand you've used a virtual stage. Is that right? Uh, well, you know, I'm sort of enamored with the whole virtual cinematography thing. The thing that I I worked on um, uh, that Jim used uh, for Avatar, and kind of you know my uh, thing I did on on Aviator. So I'm I'm sort of just sold on that method of doing it. A, it saves money, and two, it's the way I like to create anything anyway. So I did it this way, and and um, the guys at the at, that had the Universal stage set up. It's no longer set up, unfortunately, but they had basically the Avatar set up live uh, already constructed and just go in and rent it for a couple of days so that's what i did is i had uh scanline who i picked because 
I don't know anybody who does water better than they do. Yeah, Scanline does absolutely brilliant water sims work. Now, was that working with Joe at Scanline? Yeah, Joe. But Joe, when I first did the previs, Joe wasn't involved, but he became involved uh, afterwards. Um, but at any rate, um, you know, so I, you know, created the shots and the idea of the shots. Um, um, uh, and unfortunately, Marty cut down the scene. The scene, and and they did a beautiful job. I have to say, Scanline did a really great job of it. And uh, I was a little disappointed that the scene got cut down because the shots that were cut out were great, um, and and would further, you know make you believe what you're seeing. Were they final shots? Were they completed? Yeah, they're finals. They're done. They're done. But he, before they became finals, because they all came, became final to last second, you know, when you all perfect every little moment of it, he had cut it down because he was, you know, at a four-hour movie and he was trying to rob from Peter to pay Paul, so to speak, in terms of time. So he didn't, and he felt, uh, uh, this is his words, not mine, that, that it was a little too dramatic or serious for a comedic film. So since he had a cut time anyway, let me minimize um, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the seriousness of it and, and play more the joke of it. And so, you know, uh, piling on the terrifying shots, um, you know, he decided to remove some of them. Um, so, and that's what he did. So Rob, could you talk to me a bit more about the virtual stage and how you like to work with it? Yeah, the virtual stage, I basically conceived the shots uh, and cut them together and showed Marty, and that was the template for what we were doing for the rest of the movie, pretty much. Uh, so I did it in the usual way. I, you know, I would uh, figure out what the action was and then cover it six ways from Sunday until I found a sequence that I liked, a rhythm of the sequence that I liked. Then present it to Marty, and, and then we have you know a little bit of a back and forth of I think the shop should be wider, there should be a little longer. Um, you know, I think that you know I, I have a tendency to cut things quicker than he likes to see them so a lot of times it's basically yeah i just need more time on the shot than you do so uh he would ask me to you know go, essentially go back and re-edit it more than even reshoot it um so some of it was shot in brooklyn right i mean presumably the close-ups were shot in brooklyn and you did the what the wide shots no the gimbal was on, in outside uh, on a um uh in the parking lot of uh, of, of steiner studios or the brooklyn navy yard well scanline certainly uh that was just a really good integration but i think scanline did other stuff right they worked also on stuff with the helicopter if i'm not mistaken sure the helicopter uh scene and then the the storm itself and 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 i got to do probably one of my most favorite shots i've ever done oh do tell i really liked the way it worked was the um there's a rescue scene where i shot it in the new deal parking lot on a on a 80 foot crane that that hoisted me and the little partial helicopter set in the air and then there was a guy in the very foreground and you know it was raining and lightning and wind and and two guys are being hoisted up on a winch and then Joe Farrell and Scanline and company put in a very realistic looking background with a raft and and a searchlight going through and had all the like the accoutrement of of a real event that you captured and I was hand holding the camera as I'm photographing this thing so it has that verisimilitude of you're kind of there and it's like well that's how I would love to have shot the scene itself anyway is to do stuff like that. So if I understand this correctly, you're actually in what would be effectively the helicopter of something built, I presume, by New Deal at one-to-one scale. And then you're looking down on a guy who, instead of being over water, is just over a car park. Yeah, looking down at the ground. So it's like a you know 120-foot green screen that got soaked on the ground. Uh, and, you know, just, you know, it's, I, my favorite thing to do is, you know, uh, set up real life, then photograph it. And then the, the vagaries of that, 
uh, you know, the camera move and all that stuff has a very organic feel to it. And I was very proud of the shot when you, I don't know, if, have you seen it yet? Seen the movie yet? Yeah, it just works really well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good integration and a great solution. I wasn't even thinking about how you'd have done that. And, and that, that particular shot where you have the absolute reality of the foreground cements in your head that it's, that it's pretty real. And and the background, they did a beautiful job on the background too. But the, somehow the you know that's my type of thing anyway is to set up stuff that's a little more physical, some live photography, and then then uh, I, I'm much more on much more comfortable ground doing that than I am doing a total CG shot. Uh, but you know then when I was done, it was like simply raw. It was simply you know uh, created in my head. Uh, Marty liked it, and I just did it. And Joe, you know, the, even the first mediocre comp came out. You know where you know you're you're eighty percent there because you believe the shot, and uh, and it's and the other stuff is harder to do because it's a total you know fabrication. Well, you don't have that one little thing in your head to tell you it's real that cements that it's real. So those took longer to to get to than this one. So and then it's like well that's the way I would shoot all of it. I mean that's the way I would shoot a rescue at sea. It's you get that you get in the middle of the murk and. You know, green screen what needs to be green screen and shoot what needs to be real and intermix them and you got a scene. You got a, you know, quite a believable uh, thing. So, you know, in the, in the, in the midst of all this, doing a $4 million film, I, I, you know, I got a shot that is one of my favorites I've ever done and I've done a few. So, uh, yes, you have done a few and it sounds like you're having a good time and, uh, and being able to film it the way you wanted to do it. Yeah, there was the, 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 yeah, I mean, the dream trip when you're in film school is that somebody pays you to go to London. Geneva, uh, the Italian Riviera, and the Bahamas, and then I also had to shoot a boat uh, in West Palm Beach during the Sandy Storm, so I was one of the fortunate ones to leave New York the day Sandy came in, go to West Palm Beach, shoot on a $200 million yacht, and um, and then wait out the storm in, you know, in 85-degree weather while everybody else was, you know, have, you know, have no lights and no power and whatever. And then I flew back on a Thursday. I left on a Sunday, flew back on a Thursday. And my apartment in New York happened to have the first one to have power back. So I just missed the entire thing as if it never happened. <laughs> and so it was like this, this dream trip. And then we went to the Bahamas and, and my son was with me. He was uh, helping me and assisting me on the movie. So it was a you know, tremendous thing to have my son there who's studying the business and, and uh, you know, wants to be a director to you know, uh, uh, help me on a Martin Scorsese film, go to London, Geneva, Italy, Bahamas. and <laughs> You really took one for the team. It's uh, certainly a hard life for you, Rob. It's horrible, and I'm a trooper, so I decided that I would just, you know, not complain, suck it up and just do it. And, and, and they, you know, I think I was pretty good about it. I don't think I complained once. <laughs> like your work ethic. Um, so let's move to some of the work that Brainstorm did. I think they did the tennis court prison shot. Yeah, the tennis court prison shot. That was that was one or two iterations away from being exactly the way I I'd hoped it, it would be. But um, sorry, when you say one or two iterations away, do you mean it was away from what you wanted, or it's the second? It's the second a comp of that shot that I would love to have done one or two more just to just to clean up the the, the you know I, I think it's all personal and maybe no one notices, but when you do this sort of stuff, you kind of fixate on certain things of, of, of uh, what to you looks real or what to you is the way you want it. And sometimes you need a couple of iterations for you to get like, oh, it's a little too bright on these guys over here. It's a little too dark over here. It's a little this, it's a little that. It fix up this one edge here. The focus seems a little off. You know, you, you have all these little tiny 
minor notes. It's like doing, you know, your 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 a real polished draft on something that's pretty good, and you just want to get that last little thing. And I may be the only one who appreciates it, but um, you know, I, I, I it came in at the very end, and Marty changed his mind of how long it was, so we had to do a pretty extreme refit of that shot to get it to work because originally it was a slow pullback on a crane in Brooklyn and then of course you you match it to this um, a prison I shot in California and uh, you're kind of you know married to the speed pretty much of what you shot because they're playing tennis and as the camera's pulling back more and more people are revealed as they're playing tennis and you live with the speed of the shot well Again, because he wanted to to expedite the shot, he wanted to speed it up. Well, I can't really speed it up without you seeing the fact that the tennis players are moving really fast. Uh, Not that that didn't stop us from doing it in other scenes uh, where it seemed more appropriate, where we could speed up the shot and no one seemed to care. But in this particular thing, um, uh, so we had a basic idea to get rid of all the tennis players besides Leo and uh, and and Tim Monick, who's the uh, is the dialect coach, who happens to be his tennis partner, get rid of everybody else, and then shoot on green screen tennis players, so that they don't uh, limit it by the camera revealing them that they that we have them all the time. So we rotoed out Leo and Tim Monick, put them back on the same tennis court, sped up the camera move, but left them on cards at the at the same 24 frame per second then shot these other um you know people on separately on green screen on the roof the guys lifting weights the 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 uh, the, the x number of tennis players in the in the background and um recreated a shot made to order that basically didn't have to live with the with the uh with the uh, uh, live action uh, uh, limitation of what we did um, so, you know, and, and we only saved like three seconds or four seconds. So it was like, that was the difference. I had to go to this extreme measure just to get it to, and I was almost, you know, it's one of those things where it's almost right on the money, but it didn't, I, I needed one, one or two more cracks at it to get it exactly the way I wanted it. But. So if I could, we've sort of discussed a number of the companies that did, I think there was 400 shots in total. And so we've discussed the ones that did like, you know, large bundles of those. I wonder if I could talk about some of the smaller vendors, um, mainly because I want to touch on an issue of loyalty. You seem to be quite loyal and work with certain people and, and they are very loyal back to you. And there's a number of companies we could talk about. If, if we could just start with Craig Barron, because Craig, I think one of the last shots that Matt Well Digital ever did was for for you with Hugo. And uh, and I know that uh, going back, Matt Well Digital was one of the first to ever do, um, like for example, radiosity rendering on, on Casino for Scorsese. Um, can you tell me how what capacity Craig worked with you on? Oh, Craig, you know, a I, I had a great deal of respect for him anyway, just his work, but um, uh, but as I too, and when I get into doing a total CG shot, and I don't have, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm being terribly honest, I can't rely on my sort of photographic you know, uh, 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 abilities, uh, I get a little bit lost and I, and I can, I'm not that fluent in communicating why it doesn't look photo real to me. And so I asked him if he would come in and just help me out a little bit, give me a little advice on, on how to do it. So he came up with a couple sketches and various things to, 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 to alleviate some of the stuff. And in the meantime, you know, the shots were being worked on and, and being, you know, fixed and corrected and getting a little more what I had in mind uh, uh, than that, you know, but it, it's for me, it's, I, I'm not, you know, uh, a CG, you know, uh, renderer person. So I, 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 I can't, 
it's, that's why I, I, I think I really enjoyed that other shot is that I could photograph it and there's lightning, there's rain, it looks real, it is real. Now, it, if the background doesn't look right, it sticks out like a sore thumb with a tremendous amount of clarity of why it does. So that's my comfort zone. And my discomfort zone is doing something that's totally fabricated that needs to look like it's totally real. And, and uh, so I asked, you know, Craig, just to give me some advice. And I did really like what he did, his contribution to Yugo. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I believe he has a new company or he's teaming up with a new company uh, that's uh, Magno, Magno Opus or… Uh, yeah, so he teamed up with uh, Ben Grossman and Alex Henning. And and they have a, a a team, and he's sort of like the artistic director, which is a wise choice because he's very good at it. And of course, you worked with uh, Ben Grossman very closely on Hugo. Yeah, and so uh, so they 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 uh, were gracious enough to have him come over and sort of quietly help me out a bit. And and another company that I thought worth mentioning, uh, Lola. Now I know they did great work on uh, Hugo, and I've admired their work for years, especially on uh, Captain America. But I understand they uh, got brought in for a bit of, uh, um, well, I don't, <laughs> not particularly politically correct, but uh, midget tossing. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. We, we did. There was two midget tossing scenes. One of them was, um, and we ultimately end up not using it because I think Marty liked it not being totally you know, nailed and being a little off. Uh, and, and what they did is that they basically hung the midget on a wire and, um, to get that freeze frame at the end. And, um, and so when you remove the wire and the two guys are really not really tossing them, but just sort of letting them go, it tends to look like it. And so I had them do a number of versions, uh, of which is not in the movie, by the way, of, them of them fixing and making it feel like he, they actually let go, and there was a sense of gravity uh, that is the opposite of what uh, uh, of what a um, a wire is. You know, depending on the pendulum of the wire, it's going up when it's supposed to be going down. Is is a uh, um, you know is, is something that you're, that my eye picks up. So I was more offended than Marty was, and then when I fixed it, it was like everybody agreed that it, that it was fixed. It looks now real. But he kind of liked the way it looked before because he got used to seeing it, and it had it was just off enough for him to, you know. And the film is a little bit off. I mean, the film has a little funny stuff in it, very comedic stuff. So that that part. And the the, the other shot we did, which is um, Crazy Horse, uh, um, did a bunch of composites for me that they were terrific. You know, if you know Paul and and Zena Graf, but yes, uh, Crazy Horse do great work. Yeah, and they, they do beautiful work, and they're very easy to work with, and they're terrific and all that stuff. And I had to do um, – Marty was not really satisfied with the fact that when we shot the real dwarf toss, there was no dwarf tossing. Everybody felt like, oh, well, that's crazy to do it. Um, so it, the only shot was the one on a wire, and the other shots were he was either already on the target or they were pulling him off the target. But it was never shot of actually him hitting it, and so Marty wanted him to hit it. And, and, and I loved the, the discussions. How are you going to do it? I'm gonna throw him at the target. And he's gonna stick on it. He's in Velcro, and 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 it's like the simple. It's like the sunlight thing. It's like you just go out with your light meter, see what sunlight is, and imitate it. It's not that big a deal. And in this particular case, well, it's not that big a deal, except you know the set's long gone, uh, or the location that we shot is long gone. So I had to shoot it all at green screen um, at New Deal on the same day that we shot the rescue, and then the same day we shot. Uh, there's a whole bunch of shots that you may or may not have witnessed in the um, commercial at the very beginning. Every time it cuts to black and there's a bunch of traders trading, those are the same 22 people that are in the midget shot in the dwarf bus. 
uh, uh, and Crazy Horse comped all those backgrounds, and I shot a, a couple of uh, you know stock signs uh, as the backgrounds for those things. So those are all fabricated, and it's the same 22 people in that commercial um, and in the first scene where the 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 the, the, the dwarf hit the target, and people wonder how did you do it? It's like picked up the guy and threw him, and, and they do that. So, but one of my points in mentioning these companies is that. You know, clearly you have a really great relationship with them. I'm just wondering, do you go back to them because uh, they know how you work? Or is it because they speak your kind of shorthand? Is it that you just don't want to have to time, sort of spend time reestablishing things? I mean, you, you just have these great relationships with these vendors. Well, I, I guess it's a combination of all those things. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, what's the point of shopping around when you find somebody that you, A, like, they do very good work. They're, you know, and in, in my case, they're all terrific people. Brian Battles is a wonderful guy. I don't know if you've, you know, interviewed him or talked to him or not, but he did a lot of work in the movie. Uh, uh, Paul and Zena Graff are terrific. I mean, I first worked with them on Aviator, and actually, I haven't, this is the second time I've worked with them. I did one other shot on Good Shepherd, and they just do terrific work to terrific people. And you know, uh, and a, a lot of times people call me up, and and you know, which is very nice for me is they generally like the movies that I had them work on before, and ask me you know if there's any room for them on the film that they're doing, not just for work because I think they like you know, the Marty films and the and the sort of the pedigree of the of the productions that I'm working on. So they. You know, literally, Brian Battles called up and said, you know, I want to work on the movie. Um, and, and Paul and Zena Graff, you know, they wanted to work on the movie. And um, and it's like, why not? They're great. Um, and they do nice work. And, and uh, I know how to speak to them. They, and, and once they work with me, they kind of know my weird way of working, um, you know, which is, you know, sometimes counterintuitive to the way other people work. Uh, and... Um, you know, I'm, you know, just to put it in perspective, I'm not a big realist. Like there's some versions of things where even though you do things that look realistic, people tend to hide behind, well, this is what it would really look, even if it looks crappy. It's like, oh, the sun would really be here. So that's, we should do that. It's like, well, no, if the sun's really there and it looks like shit, I don't want to do that. I want to do it, you know, where I wait for eight hours till I find the right light. And that's kind of counterintuitive where people just immediately give you Here's the, 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 um, uh, we calculated it and this is exactly what it would be. It's like, that's great if it works. If it doesn't, then even on a live action set, I'm changing it. I'm changing the background. I don't care where somebody was and where, you know, what portion of the wall would really be behind them if it looks like crap. I want to move it. And so once you kind of know that, it doesn't become too difficult to figure out what I'm going to buy and what I'm not going to buy. And it's easier when I've worked with people who go, oh, I get it. Just make it look cool. <laughs> pretty, pretty much just make it look cool. And it sounds so stupid, but it's true because people tend to argue with you and give you, you know, I want to make this shot the star. It's like the shot is not the star. The shot is an agent within the sequence to make you believe the scene do not make it star. Do not stand out. I don't want it because it distorts the story that we're telling. And once you kind of get that, you you know, a relief is 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 uh, created because now you you can answer the same question I can. And usually, people who work with me, um, you know, they tend to now get that that's what I'm doing. That that you know, a real life. If I don't like it, is is uh, uh, not what we're doing. We're doing we're artistically 
creating the illusion of real life, but we're not really replicating real life because there is no real life in a movie. There is no such thing. There's, you know, everything's a cheat. You know, those yes. are yes, they aren't really traders. They're actors. They're not really taxi drivers. They're actors. Yeah. They're actors. Not really even wearing their own clothes. They're wearing a costume. They're not really in their own environment. They just got there the first day and they've never lived in it. Um, you know, how many people, uh, you know, uh, are are lit in a set with a you know a twenty foot piece of muslin and. Uh, you know, a, a couple of maxi brutes, uh, um, um, you know, uh, uh, reflecting off of it into another piece of muslin to make it look. So, I mean, what what part? Of, where's the reality in any of it? So, the curse is: don't make it look real if it looks boring. Make it feel real, but again, you use your artistic judgment of of, of uh, you know you're entertaining somebody. So, Rob, I was wondering if I could ask you about one other thing. You at the beginning of the. Interview when we were talking, you know, I said that you were the second unit director as well as being the visual effects supervisor, and you pointed out that you're also the second unit uh, DOP. And since we last spoke, I think in, in uh, like last year, you were uh, became a member of the American Cinematographers Society. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that and the guilds, because clearly they're, uh, especially in the case of the uh, the AC, it's one of the most prestigious and most uh, helpful, I guess, guilds uh, in the industry. Yeah, well, I mean, what I love about all that stuff, uh, you know, there's a sense of, you know, I'm a huge film fan uh, and the history of film, not even just, you know, and, and, the, and the caliber of people who work in it. And a lot of these organizations tend to, you know, embrace, you know, the new way of doing things and teaching the next generation. It's like, you know, the, the AC in particular is, you know, they have very proud history that they wish to pass on to the next generation of filmmakers and not lose it or reinvent it is to, you know, and, and there's something really kind of noble about it. And, and for me, it's always something that when I was in school, the idea of belonging to the ASC or belonging to the Directors Guild or belonging to the Editors Guild or belonging to the, you know, cameraman's union was like, well, that will never happen. I mean, that's just crazy talk. You know, I don't know anybody. I'm not wealthy. I can't buy my way in. I don't know my way. I, you know, so that's crazy. And there's a dream that you wish to have that you can do that. And then one day, lo and behold, you get to do it. And and now that you do it, you want to now create the same feeling that you had when you were growing up and you were interested in these organizations for the next generation of, of, of people who are like-minded, who, who um, you know, get it, you know, they, 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 they understand the work of it, they appreciate the art of it, you know, um, so there's something, no, there's something noble about it for me, I guess, that, um, you know, so enormous thrill for me to have the letters ASC after my name, like when I was going to film school and admiring the hell out of Caleb Deschanel and and uh, Vittorio Storaro and John Toll and and one of my first experiences with uh, Alan Davio, we were doing commercials and he went off to do um, E.T., his first big film with Spielberg. Um, he did a, a, a student film with him, and then he became Alan Davio. I mean, and just the sweetest man. I mean, the nicest person. Oh, I heard him talk. He's just such a nice guy. Incredibly generous, very generous, and very sharing. And the the best of the cinematographers, like Richardson, you know, they don't shy away from. You know, if I say, well, you know, I'm going to go light something, uh, um, and it wants to fit into your movie, how would you do it? There is no question of him taking the time to tell me in a way that is here's the sensibility of why we're doing it so that you could 
a because that's basically giving away. You know, I wouldn't call it his, his, his secret because the secret is he's a prodigy, and you know it's, it's hard to give that away. But you know, the essence of what makes him him, and freely giving it to you so that you could employ that in what you're doing. And what I find in most of the you know the big names that we talk about, each one of them are generous in spirit. Each one of them you know, would be delighted to tell you how they did things and, and, and appreciate your appreciation of what they did. Um, and so, you know, if, I, I guess for me, it's, you know, a chance to give anything back is always a, a lovely, you know, thing that, you know, because I knew exactly what it felt like when I was, you know, uh, in my son's shoes. And then I know what it feels like now. And, um, you know, it's a kind of, I don't know, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that. That's how I, I feel about it. And and my other belief system, uh, and it's also something I like to do, is that you know at this point in my life, I'm you know in the ASC, I'm in the DGA, I'm uh, uh, VES, I'm uh, uh, editors guild, and and the cameraman's guild, and um, the confluence of all of those working parts in a movie makes me uh, better at and more appreciative of other people's problems as we're going to make a movie and may and 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 grease the system more than have it bind up on you so you know the one you know uh, the the cameraman in me makes me a better director the director in me makes me better cameraman and the editor in me makes me better at both of those things i'll never be you know thelma and and marty and bob richardson but you know you can make a a formidable you know uh, um uh, uh attack on something the more knowledge you have of how everybody else works and you sort of stretch a little bit beyond your abilities the more you know about something else and the more closed-minded you are about it which i think you know the lesser lights of the business are well i'm just a cameraman and i just do what cameramen do and i'm just an editor i don't get involved in the cinematography and i'm just you know i it's very self-limiting and you can never really get out of your 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 um, box unless you work with some really great people. So, you know, I, 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 I feel that the, the, you know, belonging to these various things gives me a sensitivity to all parts of the film business, which only could help make me better. And, you know, and, and, and I'm all for that, you know, Rob, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us about this film. I loved it. It's not, it's not the shortest film you've ever made. Um, but (laughs) it's not the shortest film to work on either. Anyway, it, it, it's really a joy to talk to you. It always is. And I'm so interested in these perspectives that you have uh, with such a strong emphasis, not just on the visual effects, of course, but on the cinematography, the direction, and, uh, and how all the departments collaborate together. Oh, you're welcome. It was all my pleasure. And uh, I'm glad you liked it. The real question is this. Was all this legal? Absolutely not. This is my home! Good for you, little man. Me, the little man. The show goes on! They're gonna need to send in the National Guard to take me out, because I ain't going nowhere! Well, I want to thank Rob uh, again for that. It's a terrific uh, opportunity to talk to someone who really knows what he's uh, talking about and has such a wide, experienced uh, range of uh, opinions. He can just speak 
so eloquently on lenses and so eloquently on visual effects, uh, can speak to story as well as, of course, uh, the technicalities of being able to put a pipeline together. So we really appreciate Rob taking the time to talk to us. That's it for this year. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. On behalf of Jason, myself, and of course, the rest of the FX Guide team, led by John and Jeff, we really want to say thanks. Have a really safe Christmas and we'll see you in the new year. Until then, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.